According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews. And we've got our first look at chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. A week ago, we wrapped up verse 13 of chapter 8. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. In fact, from the very moment that Jeremiah uttered the prophecy, Behold, days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. As soon as he promises that a new covenant is on the way, he has made the first one obsolete. Mosaic law was on borrowed time after that. And of course, when our Savior said, it is finished, and he had his victory on the cross, Mosaic law was really on borrowed time after that, because Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. So when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And uh, that's where the author is taking it. From chapter 8 into chapter 9 now, in a description of the old and obsolete, ready to disappear, and the new and coming and glorious new covenant that God will be making with Israel at the return of Jesus Christ. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father to open the eyes of our understanding to lead us into some pretty deep water this morning. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you unworthy, but made worthy. We're unworthy in ourselves to approach your throne, but in Christ, you make us to be worthy. And Father, the blessings that we have to approach you today is what we're studying. We're going to study the righteous requirements of standing before you for worship, the righteous requirements for entering into the presence of your holiness. And if it was up to each one of us, Father, we would all fall short. But Your Son is the overcomer. Your Son is the victor. And Father, He is worthy. I thank You that in Him we can stand before You. We enter within the veil and we function in our Melchizedek priesthood before Your very presence. And Father, this is a glory to to understand. It's a glory to study. It's a glory to live out. So, Father, we're praying today that you would open our eyes and help us to understand this more and more, that we can engage in our priesthood, we can engage in this access that we have in such a way that you receive all the the pleasure and the glory. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so in contrasting the old and the new, the old is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. The new is on the way. And in introducing the new, he, the author here takes about five verses, a little bit more actually, to describe what they used to have, to describe how it was founded, to describe the tabernacle as it was first given by Moses and as it existed in the wilderness. And, and really, we'll take about five verses of this, and then the author himself, who uh, for years I thought it was Barnabas, and, and lately I'm starting to agree with the Luke hypothesis that Luke is the author of, of Hebrews. Either way, though, the author of Hebrews takes five verses to describe the tabernacle, and then he says, I'm out of time. He says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Almost like he wishes he could take another chapter or two chapters or longer to really spell out the tabernacle in Moses' day. 
But he lets it go with verse 5 because he wants to move on and he wants to make the very important point that has to be made in this chapter. That in contrasting the old with the new, we don't want to lose sight of what the real issue is. The real issue is that sinners are standing in the presence of the holiness of God. How can sinners stand in the presence of the holiness of God? No matter who your high priest is, no matter on what basis he stands there, he's still a sinner standing in the presence of the holiness of God. So how is he there without being blasted to smithereens? (laughs) How is he there without immediately falling dead? As we're going to see this morning in most of the instructions that were given, those instructions are given repeatedly so that you not die, so that Aaron not die, so that his sons not die, so that the Levites not die, so that no man among you dies by approaching the holiness of God. And it becomes a very important issue for us to recognize as we draw near just how extraordinary that is, how earth-shattering that is, that we draw near to the holiness of God in any capacity, let alone in this priestly capacity that we have in Christ, becomes really quite significant. And so it starts with verse 1. I don't think we're not going to get past verse 1 today. Uh, so the, the tabernacle and the furnishings and, the, and all of this will wait until, uh, until the new year. But um, we have to deal with verse 1 and the depths of what it deals with and in a way that I've kind of avoided so far in this Hebrew study, but in this verse I, I can't let myself avoid it because there's regulations. Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And uh, there's so much in this one verse we could spend ages. We could spend weeks and months here just unfolding all this. I'm going to give one hour on this here this morning and hopefully get through it all in its entirety. But there's a lot there that we have to recognize, first of all, in terms of regulations, and then to recognize the contrast between the earthly, or really the cosmos sanctuary that we have here. The cosmos sanctuary. And what is it, what is it that's representing the heavenly reality? By the time we leave this chapter, We're going to have a tour of the heavenly reality because Jesus went to heaven after he was resurrected. And when he ascended, he went to heaven. Let me just give you a preview of this. In verse 24, you glance down to the end of the chapter, or verse 23, it says, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. So the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, those were just copies. They're replicas of a heavenly reality. And so the blood of a goat or a bull, the blood of animals were used to cleanse the copies. But the blood of an animal was not going to cleanse the heavenly, not going to cleanse the reality. And the heavenly things themselves must be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Why must heaven be cleansed? What happened to defile heaven? How do you get heaven dirty anyway? See, Well, heaven was defiled once upon a time. And the resolution to that explains much of why we're even here in the first place. And uh, much of what we'll have to deal with today and in some upcoming classes is going to address this. For by explanation in verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, that is a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so remember, when Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies, he would enter within the veil, and it was you know death if he did the wrong procedure, if he went the wrong way, if he brought strange fire, if he violated any of the requirements for standing in the holiness of God, the high priest would be struck dead. 
to appear in the presence of God for us. And here's what Jesus did. He went to heaven to cleanse the heavenly defilement. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year. Remember the Day of Atonement comes around every year. And here we go again. And here we go again. You know, it's like New Year's Eve. Here we go again. Pastor's going to give a message tomorrow night, kind of summarizing a whole year in one night. And we'll look back over 2018 and see how faithful God has been. We'll look ahead to 2019 and just celebrate how faithful God has been. So here we go again. And for the Old Testament priest, it was the Day of Atonement every year. Here we go again. And uh, it was a reminder of sin as we read. And so the high priest would enter the holy place year by year with blood not his own. That's significant too. When Jesus goes into the heavenly holy place, it's with his own blood that he himself is the sacrifice. He himself is the only worthy substitute to resolve these issues. All right. So that's what we're dealing with. We're going to get a tour of heaven. We're going to see the heavenly temple that comes up at the end of the chapter. But what starts the chapter here is the earthly, the cosmos, the cosmikos hagios. And we'll look at this. And uh, I don't do a lot of exegesis this hour. Usually I reserve that for the 9.30 hour or the Wednesday night hour. But we'll get a little bit here this morning to understand what this cosmic sanctuary is all about. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. Do you like regulations? Do you like bureaucracy? <laughs> we live in a culture where we've got government agencies that are writing regulations for everything under the sun and uh, regulations for this and regulations for that. And when my mind reads the English word regulations, I go to a very bad place. All right. So I've got to stop and I've got to confess and get back in fellowship again. Okay. Regulations. Regulation sounds like rules. Regulation sounds like uh, mindless, pointless, uh, you know, dumb things that they force you to do for whatever reason they think they have. All right. Regulations. Regulations. I don't like regulations. Well, I can get around. I can, I can start to like these regulations because this word here is a word for righteousness. This is uh, the dikaiomata. This is the, the righteous uh, standards. And really it comes to what regulations should be, what sadly human regulations fairly, uh, rarely are. But what God's regulations are, are the, the stipulations of his own standard, that God is the righteous standard. And so the things that meet the righteous standard of God are these dikaiomata, these regulations, these righteous things of God's righteous standard is what this is. And what we realize very quickly with respect to, um, with respect to approaching God is that you don't just approach God any old way. You don't just approach God on your terms. You don't just approach God because you want to. Or you don't just approach God with what you think is going to impress God. Uh, I mean, go back to the Cain and Abel story and you realize very early in human history that was made clear that Cain tried to show up with vegetables. God was having none of it. All right. But for Abel and his sacrifice, God had regard. Why? Was it because Abel was better than Cain or smarter? He, he figured it out. It's because God sets the standard. And for a sinner to approach God, he must do so with blood being shed. And the substitute, the animal that died, is what made uh, Abel's sacrifice a sacrifice of faith. The vegetables without blood, without an animal dying, that was not a sacrifice of faith. It did not meet God's righteous standard. 
So um, whatever else you want to do politically with regulations, that's between you and the Lord. But what you're going to do biblically with these regulations is you're going to cross off the word regulations and you're going to put righteous standard. And I think we'll do better with it. All right. Even the first covenant had righteous standards of divine worship and the cosmicon sanctuary here. Israel functioned in a Hagion cosmicon. And just write it down, even if you don't know that Hagios is a word for holy or sanctuary. Cosmos is the word for this world. It's the word for this world arrangement, this world system. And it really jumps out, and it, I think it sets the table for everything that follows here in chapter 9. Because we're dealing with the angelic conflict and the resolution to why that temple was defiled when Satan fell. Israel functioned in a Hagion Cosmicon, that is a worldly sanctuary. Take note, it's not an earthly sanctuary, it's a worldly sanctuary. If the earth is destroyed, that's one thing. If the cosmos is destroyed, that's something else. And we tend to conflate those two, okay? But this world is passing away along with it, it's lust. And oh yes, by the way, the heavens and the earth will also be destroyed, but that's a separate story. That's an entirely different issue from this cosmos, which is passing away along with its loss. And so the Greeks would have two different words for world, and, and, and they're both translated world in our New Testament. There's gay, right, G-E, uh, pronounced gay, where we get all of our geo terms, right? We got geology and geography, and we've got different, different words that are based on geo, right? The geo prefix, which is our word for geography or geology or geometric or any of these other things that centers on the earth, centers on the planet, the real estate, the, 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 the territory that we're walking. Cosmos is something else. We've studied this many times. Cosmos speaks about the arrangement, the ordered arrangement of God's moral creation. All right? The, God's moral creation. We are the residents of the cosmos. And strictly speaking, to keep it all biblical, but the inhabitants of the cosmos are angels and humans, and that's it, okay? Uh, plants and animals, uh, they occupy the gay, they occupy the earth. There's plants on this earth, they're leaving, living plants. There's animals on this earth, they're living, breathing, moving animals. They occupy the earth, they don't occupy the cosmos. The cosmos is the moral arrangement the morally accountable realm that either serves God in obedience under positive volition or rebels against God in disobedience in negative volition. Plants and animals do not have volitional capacity to obey or disobey. They do what God, what the Creator calls for them to do. And that's, uh, that's a whole separate sermon of its own. All right. So Israel functioned in a Hagion Cosmicon. What we're going to see is Satan also functioned in a Hagion Cosmicon. Before Satan fell, before he was a fallen angel, he was a high priest. And as a high priest, he functioned in a Hagion Cosmicon. He functioned in this cosmos temple. And uh, we're going to see a replica based on the heavenly. And when he defiled the replica, he defiled the heavenly. And that's what Jesus had to cleanse. And that's what we're going to see here today. Yes, it was on planet Earth. The tabernacle moved around in the wilderness and it settled in Bethel and it settled in a couple other places. And then finally Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and it was not a tent, so it was fixed in one spot. And it stayed in Jerusalem until it was destroyed and then it was rebuilt in Jerusalem. 
They were on planet Earth, but more specifically, it was a venue within this cosmos arrangement through which sinners could approach the holy God. That's the nature of the holy of holies. That's the nature of a temple. God put a place on this earth where a sinner could stand in the presence of the holiness of God and not die, (laughs) okay? Staggering. It was the only place on earth where it could happen. And it was only one guy, one day a year, who could do this initially in the first, uh, in the first uh, covenant, in the Mosaic covenant. So it was the arrangement, the cosmos arrangement through which sinners could approach the holy God. And uh, we'll look at some verses here in Exodus 28 and 29 and 30. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but if you're rusty on your, um, on your uh, ironic priesthood, here's, uh, here's, some chap- here's some chapters you can turn to. So let's go back to Exodus 28 and see what I'm talking about here. Exodus 28. If you struggle to remember the difference between gay and cosmos, uh, just remember, of course, I already said the gay or the geo speaks to the, the, the geography, the geology, the planet, uh, the territory. Uh, cosmos, though, speaks of the arrangement. And if it helps you, cosmetic comes from the same root. And the cosmetic, when you ladies are applying your cosmetics, what are you doing? You are arranging things, okay? You're arranging your your face. You're arranging your eyes and your ears and your lips and that, okay? So just think arrangement. Every time you're applying cosmetics, anytime you're doing the verb is cosmeto, uh, you are arranging things. And so the arrangement in the cosmos presently is a fallen cosmos. Presently it's a terrible arrangement. Uh, Satan is the god of this age, all right? And uh, that's what we deal with when we talk about the plan of God, not only for saving humans, but also for reconciling and, and dealing with the angelic rebellion the way that he does. All right, so Exodus 28. And then just a few verses here to really make it clear. Sinners are approaching the holy God. When we read in Hebrews 9 that there's regulations for approaching. That's what we're talking about. How do we approach? So in Exodus 28, uh, bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. So one tribe was selected, Levi, to be the priestly tribe, but then one family within that tribe was selected, that's Aaron. The house of Aaron was selected to be the priestly uh, representatives. They're going to minister as a priest to God. And so we have Aaron and his four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The first two are going to die very early because they're going to, they're going to violate these procedures. They're going to bring strange fire and Nadab and Abihu are going to be killed. And so it's Eleazar and Ithamar that are then going to carry the priesthood forward to the following generations. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. Well, why does that matter? Why does it matter if he has attractive garments? What does it matter? Can I just approach God any way I want? Can I just approach God in my, uh, you know, whatever? Imagine... uh, (laughs) Well, okay, let that go. Verse 3, You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. So these these craftsmen were given the spiritual gift of of garment making and, and, and tabernacle building and they were skilled by God to make these things. They must have been marvelous to consecrate him that he may minister 
as a priest to me. They uh, are, uh, these are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe. There's doctrine attached to all of these items. And a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister as priests to me. What are they doing? They're going into the holy place and they're ministering to Yahweh. They're serving him. This is the Latreia service of ministry. They are blessing God in their service to God on behalf of the people. Remember, a prophet came and spoke on God's behalf to the people. Priests go and serve on behalf of the people, ministering to God, bringing gifts and offerings and sacrifices to God. All right, so that's uh, verses 3 and 4 there. Skip on down. There's a lot here, and you can read it on your own if you like. Um, But skip on down. As you read, though, pay attention in verse 17 and verse 18 and 19, you got rows of gems. Pay attention to that. That's, uh, you're going to see that again. Uh, Satan's going to be wearing something very similar to that back in his day. Down to verse 29. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Now it's called a breastpiece of judgment. That tells us that there is a righteous standard by which if anyone's going to approach the holiness of God, it's got to be on God's righteous standard. That's what Hebrews 9.1 is talking about. That the first covenant had regulations. It had righteous standards. And so uh, he carries the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. They shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now we're going to see several uses of the term continually, and yet we have to ask ourselves, seriously, how continuous was it? Because it was once a year, one day, once a year, year after year after year. And yet the design is for to be in his presence continually. That's one of the big adjustments now to the new covenant and the privilege we have in the Melchizedek priesthood is that we don't have to wait for one day a year to stand before our Father. We enter within the veil and we are there continually. That's our blessing. All right, down, uh, skip down to verse 25. I'm, I'm sorry, 35 unless you want to make your own pattern for this and you need to know about the hems and the pomegranates and stuff. Um, and the golden bells. He had a lot of bells on. All right. Verse 35. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord so that he will not die. And here's our first clue of so that he will not die. How serious is this when a sinner stands before the holiness of God? And what happens if he goes in there without his bells on? He's going to die, okay? Then there's uh, these other things here, um, the, the plate of pure gold and holy to the Lord. There's a seal there. We have our own seal, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
All right, but he needs to be accepted. Verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. It shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You don't just approach any old way you want. Uh, Verse 40 again is the reminder on the tunics and the sashes and caps for glory and for beauty. Verse 41 says, You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Without these procedures in place, they cannot serve the Lord. You shall make for them linen breeches, cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. Again, death is the penalty if they take any step incorrectly. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. We get into chapter 29. I'm going to skip down through a lot of this, but down through verses 42 through 46 of the next chapter as well. Uh, Talking about these offerings. There shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. When you are within the veil, when you are in the presence of God's holiness, it's more than just simply being there. It's communing, it's fellowship, it's communication. And God was speaking. I will speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so throughout the Old Testament, Israel was unique in this. They were the chosen people. They were the covenant nation. The Egyptians did not have a holy of holies that they could send a high priest in there and stand before the creator God of the universe. The Romans didn't. The Babylonians didn't. Nobody did. But the Jews The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had a holy of holies and a priesthood whereby they could be represented by a mediator, by a high priest who could stand there in the presence of God representing the people. Their names were carved on his breastplate and all these things are in place. Unique in the Old Testament. Now, that's a foreshadowing. It gives away to what you and I have in the church age. We want to get that. It gives way to what Israel will have in the millennium. All right? We're going to get into those studies as well. But what I want to stress this morning is the fact that this is a reflection of a heavenly reality. And all of these issues of holiness and standards of righteousness, if there's regulations here on earth, what do you think there is in heaven? There's regulations in heaven. Who can approach God in heaven? Can, can Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel, any of those angels, are they allowed to go into the holy of holies in the heavenly places any old time they want? How do they stand before God's holiness in heaven? That becomes a question as well as who can stand in the holiness of God here on earth? Because this is a replica of the heavenly reality. Over to chapter 30. And uh, down uh, to 20 and 21. 
There's a reason why there was a laver they had for a cleansing procedure. We have confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9. We want to confess our sins before we start Bible class, before we engage in any spiritual function. You want to make sure you're in fellowship. Well, in the tabernacle, it was this silver laver that they would go to for their cleansing. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. (laughs) There it is again. They will not die. See, no one walked into this room today. I feared that if they walked in the wrong way, they were going to die. I greeted our visitors this morning. I'm happy to see them. They weren't afraid that they were going to die when they walked into this room. All right. But uh, for a priest to go into the holy place or for the high priest to go into the holy of holies, it's a serious deal. So when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. And so we have the cleansing requirements there. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. This is what the Lord was teaching when he was giving foot washing to Peter and the disciples. That you've had the whole bath, you get completely cleansed when you're saved, you just need the partial cleansing, the foot and hand washing, to when you confess your sins, to be restored to fellowship, continue on in your priestly ministry. And so we have those issues there. Specifically, what we're talking about, regulations. Israel function in a cosmic sanctuary, a worldly sanctuary, It was a venue within this cosmos arrangement through which sinners could approach the holy God. And that's the the big takeaway here in Hebrews 9.1. Sinners are approaching the holy God. Regulations of divine worship speaks to the righteous standard by which the holy God may be approached by his worshipers. That's what these regulations are. And it's not a matter of earning it or deserving it because none of us do. But it's a matter of God being satisfied. It's a matter of His satisfaction as to His not being defiled by our approach. Because we're still the sinners. Even though we're saved by grace, we're still the sinners approaching a holy God. Regulations of divine worship. And, you know, and this is where legalism falls short. You know, a lot of churches, when they fail in the grace department, what do they turn to? They turn to legalism. And they turn to all of these human-made rules. And they turn to ways by which they can look down their long snooty noses at other believers and think they're better than them. And say, you know, because of drinking or smoking or dancing or whatever it is you think you know, it makes you better than somebody else. And that's just human legalism and it's evil. But God has regulations of divine righteousness. He has the absolute standards by which He may be approached. All right. Am I the only one warm in here? Can we bump that down a little bit? Thank you. All right. Regulations by which he may be approached. And this is what we get to. And this is what I think gets lost. And what I want us to regain today and moving forward, what I want us to get regained, I I think as New Testament believers, I think we have such a tremendous intimacy with God. We have such fellowship and we we have such access that I think we take it for granted sometimes or we lose track of the fact that this incredible access we have still is to this tremendous God who is a consuming fire. That we have, we must maintain reverence before our Lord, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And if we lose that fear of the Lord, 
In other words, if we're so um, haphazard about how we approach Him, because we can't approach Him at a moment's notice, do we stop and realize that it's holiness we're approaching? When we decide at the drop of a hat we can just go to the Lord in prayer. Yes. Okay? I don't want us to lose that. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer at the drop of a hat. But I want us to drop the hat with reverence. Okay? I want us to not lose the reverence of what really means. You know, he told Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. As he approached a burning bush, we're approaching much more than a burning bush. And I want us to have this sense of reverence. And so really... This comes, this question now comes to the core of what Jesus was dealing with when he talked to that woman at the well. John chapter 4. Do you remember this story? In John chapter 4, he's talking to a Samaritan woman at, at Jacob's well. And uh, he's got a one on one with this woman because the disciples were out of there. They were gone into town to buy food. And, and so this woman comes out to draw water, and Jesus is going to tell her about the living water. There's a whole message right here in this chapter. I'm just going to focus on verses 23 and 24. Because this woman, when she realizes that it's a prophet standing in front of her, <laughs> she's, she's got questions. This has been bugging her for a long, long time. And who knows? I mean, this could be her only chance in her entire lifetime to ever stand face to face with a real prophet. So she's going to get her questions answered today. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And she wants to know, in verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jewish people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And this has been bugging her for a long, long time. She's a Samaritan. The Samaritan Pentateuch makes Mount Gerizim the, the place of blessing. And they built a temple there. They had their own Samaritan Pentateuch, their own Samaritan uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And yet the Jews put their temple on Jerusalem. And they've got their own Pentateuch. And plus, more than that, they've got Psalms and prophets and other Hebrew scriptures. So she says, which is it? Is it our mountain or your mountain? Is the place where men ought to worship? How can the holiness of God be approached? Who can approach? How can they approach? Where can they approach? She wants to know. So Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, the old is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. An hour is coming when the the law is being fulfilled. He's going to go to the cross and, and produce the victory so as to bring in the new covenant. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Okay, so there's the short answer. The Jewish scriptures arrived. The Samaritans ripped them off. The Samaritan Pentateuch was not God-breathed and inspired. It was their translation of Moses' law. And so we have this. And then he says, an hour is coming and now is. (coughs) What a transition from verse 21 to verse 23. An hour is coming and now is. (coughs) the reason why it's now is is because god the son was present walking this earth with his disciples the reason why the hour is coming is because jesus christ in the church age will again be present with his disciples abiding in you and me christ in you the hope of glory (coughs) 
but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, we're not talking about those that go into the earthly replica. We're not talking about an Aaronic priesthood that goes into a replica. We're talking about true priests and true worshipers going into the true temple in the heavenly places in Christ. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Now this is a pedagogical function. God the Father does this. He uses the Son and the Holy Spirit so that humans can approach Him, but God is the one that's seeking the worshipers. God the Father is seeking worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's why here in the church age, it doesn't matter if you're seated on a church in Woodrow Avenue or seated on a church in Cross Park Drive or seated on a church in Timbuktu or wherever your physical body is seated. Spiritually speaking, if you're occupied with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, you have entered within the veil and you are standing in the Holy of Holies. You are in the presence of God the Father in in your Melchizedek priesthood. That's our glory. And Jesus is getting at this here with this woman at the well. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. I who speak to you, I am. All right, so this is what we're dealing with. Regulations of divine worship speaking to the righteous standard by which the holy God may be approached by his worshipers. And what Jesus was getting at, the hour is coming and now is. He's foreshadowing what the book of Hebrews is now developing out over the course of all these chapters, basically from chapter 5 to chapter 10, talking about our approach to this holy God in our Melchizedek priesthood. All right? The question was asked repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, how can this happen? So we'll get some Leviticus this morning, we'll get some Psalms. Leviticus 21 What are these righteous standards by which the holy God may be approached? Leviticus 21, verses 16 through 24. Who can approach? Who cannot approach? Why? And we're going to see that their stipulations were a bit different than our stipulations, thankfully, because God makes us worthy to approach Him. Leviticus 21, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. All right, so we start right there. First of all, did you notice the word man? You didn't realize the entire Levitical priesthood was male? That uh, the daughters of Aaron were not priests, only the sons of Aaron were priests. The daughters of Aaron were like the Levites, that they were servants, they were helpers, but they were not priests. Even if they were Aaronic, they were just Levites. Daughters of Aaron were Levites, not priests. And so it was only men going into the holy place and only men going into the holy of holies. So no man. But then beyond that, if he has a defect, what do we mean by defect? Well, it's going to be spelled out for you. Because the picture is the sinless Lamb of God. The picture is the perfect God-man, God the Son, who is coming to redeem fallen man. Why send a disfigured man to picture the, the perfect Son of God? That, that does not paint the picture. And so no one who has a defect shall approach. That is, a blind man. 
No blind priests. All right? Blindness is a defect. The lamb has to be without spot or blemish. If it has a spot or blemish, it's not qualified to be the sacrifice. And so a priest, same way, without defect, a blind man or a lame man, he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand, all right, can't go, can't stand before God. Your, your defect is, uh, is an offense. Or a hunchback or a dwarf, all right, <laughs> that's discrimination in any event. Pastor Tommy McIntosh was a chairman, was a chaplain, still is, at Travis County Jail. And he's, uh, he's about this tall. And he's, uh, yeah, it's marvelous. And he, he'll talk about, if he was a Levite, he'd be stuck out, but he's a church-age Southern Baptist, so he's good. <laughs> so no hunchbacks, no dwarfs. Or he who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Now, these are earthly requirements, physical requirements. We have heavenly requirements, spiritual requirements, and he makes us fulfill all those requirements. It's the power of an indestructible life. The same power by which Jesus holds his priesthood is the same power by which we hold our priesthood. This is our new creation in Christ, the blessing that we have when we're saved. And uh, so it goes on. He shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God, both of the holy and most holy and the holy, only he shall not go into the veil or come near to the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now keep that phrase in mind, profane his sanctuaries. That was the original fall of Satan. And this is what Mosaic law was forbidding the Levitical priesthood to replicate. That he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and his sons and to all the sons of Israel. All right, so this is the law. And this is what they operated under. And this was what they've had ever since Leviticus. And they had this in the wilderness. They took this law into the land when they conquered the land. This was their law as a kingdom, as a settled nation within their land. And this aspect then led rise to questions. Questions that David would ask and psalmist would ask. Questions that would ask about approaching the holiness of God. Because Believers in the Old Testament understood the shadow doctrine was shadow doctrine, that there was still a reality that shadow doctrine was representing. And they wanted to function in the reality. And so these questions then get asked in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 24 and in Psalm 68. These questions get asked, who may approach? Who may approach? Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is five verses long. It's a psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Remember when David was alive, there was no temple yet. His tent was getting a little ratty and worn down. 
He was uh, desiring to build a temple for God because his own palace was glorious and God's tent was shabby. And uh, he was not allowed to build the temple. Solomon would be assigned to build the temple. But when he asked a question like this, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Is he talking about the earthly replica or is he talking about the reality behind that earthly replica, the, the heavenly holy place where God is? I believe David's talking about the reality, the heavenly reality. And so who may do this? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. There is a reality and the reality is answered by Messiah. Messiah will be the one qualified. Messiah is the one that will bring the Jewish people to a right relationship with God the Father. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Well, that rebukes the slanderer, doesn't it? Who's the slanderer? Diabolos, Satan, is the slanderer. And so when, he, when these questions that get asked are celebrating the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, at the same time they are absolutely rejecting Satan and all of his pretensions and all of his uh, goals and all of his uh, self-promotion uh, vows that he takes. So there's a lot that's there. All right, over to chapter 24, Psalm 24. Who may, verse 3 says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. All right, so Satan's out. You and I are out. Humans are out. It's got to be the spotless Lamb of God. It's got to be Jesus Christ Himself. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him. Uh, Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Salah. All right, so there's worthiness. How do we approach God? You and me, how do we approach God? We don't. Not without Jesus. Okay? Jesus. But through Him, we approach God. That's what we're saying. And so this is uh, what the regulations of divine worship center on. The righteous standard by which the Holy God may be approached by His worshipers. None of us qualify. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus does. And when he does approach, look what he does. Psalm 68. When he does ascend, what does he do? He brings gifts. And then he gives gifts. Psalm 68, 18. He ascends and he brings gifts. Well, let's see. Man, there's a ton of doctrine in this chapter too. The the mountain of God is a mountain of Bashan. The mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. All right. Bashan represents Satan and his rebellion. It was the bowls of Bashan that surrounded Christ on the cross. Satan, of course, is lusting after God's holy mountain. He's not satisfied with his own mountains. So there's uh, angelic conflict in this chapter as well. 
Chariots of God are myriads, myriads of thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Verse 18, now you have ascended on high. The one that's worthy is ascending. The one that's worthy. And he's ascending and look who he's bringing with him. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Jesus Christ ascended to the Father after His resurrection and His glorious ascension, and He didn't go by Himself. He led captivity captive. He emptied out Abraham's bosom. He brought the redeemed with Him to glory. All right, now this is going to become a focus for us in Hebrews because there's the description of the Redeemer and the sins that were previously committed under the first covenant, those sins that were passed over, God's faithful to deal with those when He brings in the new covenant and when He brings captivity out of, out of Sheol. And so he, this is the work of our Savior. You know, the, to me, that, that prayer in the garden as he's praying, if possible, let this cup pass me by. If possible, you know, Jesus and his humanity didn't want to go to the cross. He's asking his father, is there another way? Is there another plan? Right? I don't know if, <laughs> if Jesus was around in our day and age, he would have heard plenty of things. There's all kinds of pluralists in our day and age that would say, oh, there's many paths to righteousness. And Jesus, uh, he knows the truth of it. There's only one. There's only one. Because if he does not go to the cross, we don't get saved. (coughs) If he does not go to the cross, see, he's worthy. And he can go to heaven by himself and he can stand before the Father himself, fully righteous and fully worthy, but he'd be there alone. If he's going to bring many sons to glory, which is the plan, if it's the Father's good will for Jesus to bring many sons to glory and Jesus is going to fulfill the Father's good will, that means he's got to go to the cross. Righteousness must be satisfied. Regulations of divine worship speaks to the standard of righteousness by which sinners may approach a holy God. That's the whole plan that we're dealing with here. And so that's what we do. Now Satan on his part, <laughs> he... Uh, He blew it. Understand, this worship regulation standard of righteousness, standard of righteous things, the dikaiomata that they are, standard of righteous things, this is particularly crafted so as to address the fall of Satan. Particularly crafted so as to address the fall of Satan. In fact, all of these, Psalm 15, Psalm 24, Psalm 68, every one of those references had an allusion to Satan and his rebellion. Whether it was the slanderer or whether it was um, the other applications there related to uh, Bashan and the the envy over the mountain of God. Uh, Other things that that are hints at the fall of Satan. We don't have to limit ourselves to the hints though, let me tell you. The Bible lays out two full chapters in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 how Satan fell and how he blew it. And when he blew it, it was a priestly failure. It was a priestly failure. That's why we need to be mindful of that as we study the Melchizedek priesthood and we study what we're doing here in the book of Hebrews. Because even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the cosmicon, the Hagion Cosmicon, the cosmic temple. All right? Why did it have that? Why did Satan's temple have that? Why does our new uh, priesthood not have that? Because we are the temple. 
We worship in the heavenly places. We worship standing before the Father. We don't have the replicas. We don't have the shadows. We have the substance. This is, uh, this is something. All right. Told you this was deep water. You know, we get into some of these things, but it's important, okay? We have a few minutes remaining. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 14, if you're not, remember, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel 28, I recommend you get familiar with them. You'll see the fall of Satan in both chapters. Let me just quickly, in our time remaining, highlight the things that you should not overlook. When you're reading Isaiah 14, recognize that it's a taunt. It is a taunt. And in fact, it's uh, written by God Himself for Israel to sing after Satan gets bound in the abyss. So when Jesus enters uh, the millennial kingdom and He brings the Jewish people in, they can sing this taunt at Satan when He gets thrown into the abyss. And uh, so that's verse 4, take up this taunt. And um, Satan, of course, is the power behind the throne. He's the real king of Babylon. There's a human puppet on the throne, of course. But Satan is the one that's addressed here. And uh, the wrath of God upon Satan throughout this chapter. When you get down to verse 12, it's, uh, or verse 11, your pomp and the music of your hearts have, harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. I just love reading that. It makes me warms the cockles of my heart to read about a maggot bed and worm blanket. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. This is the fall of Satan right here. In the Latin Vulgate, it was the, the term was Lucifer. That's why now we got TV sitcoms and shows about Lucifer. The Hebrew is Halel ben Shachar. How you have uh, been uh, fallen from heaven, Halel ben Shachar. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. So that right there is the first of the five I wills, and that right there is the one that we have to answer because of Hebrews 9-7. Who may ascend? Regulations of divine worship. Oh, you're going to ascend, are you? On the basis of what regulation will you ascend? How, how is it righteous for you to ascend? I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. That was the mountain he lusted after. The mountains of Bashan were not sufficient for him. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The five I wills of Satan right there. Approaching God on his terms. No different than Cain showing up with the vegetables. Here I am, be impressed with me. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a tohu wilderness? Remember the tohu wabohu destruction of Genesis 1-2? And overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Listen, if you're about to lose a war and you don't want your prisoners to get released, what do you do? What did Hitler do? in his death camps. If you don't allow your prisoners to go home, you put them to death. All right. And so uh, it says in verse 21, prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. 
The new heavens and the new earth are not designed for angels. The new heavens and new earth are designed for humanity. Angels will be the servants for, for redeemed humanity on the new earth. We learned that in Hebrews chapter 1. All right, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. Verse 12 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Same context as as Isaiah 14. Yes, there's a human king on the throne, but this is the king behind the king, the power behind the, the throne. This is Satan himself being rebuked. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Only two human beings are ever in Eden, the garden of God, but this is a different Eden and this is Satan himself. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond. Look at these jewels and then go back to that high priest ephod. Go back to that breastplate and you'll see the uniform. Okay? In fact, the Septuagint matches up better than the Hebrew Masoretic text. And you see that Satan was the high priest of the, of the angelic priesthood. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Verse 14 the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. This is not a human being being addressed. This is a cherub being addressed. Not just any cherub, the anointed cherub. The one that was supreme over all the other cherubim was Choheth uh, Takanoth is the name here. Helel ben Shachar is the name in Isaiah. He had different names. You are blameless in your ways. Remember, to approach God requires righteousness. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Aha. So from this moment of the angelic fall, Satan no longer meets the regulations for divine worship in the temple. He no longer meets the Hebrews 9.1 regulations of divine worship in the, in the sanctuary. Unrighteousness was found in you. By the, well, how did that happen? By the abundance of your trade. He was the first money changer in the first temple. You were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane. Remember, regulations of divine worship. How do you approach a holy God? He's cast as profane. From the mountain of God, I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Remember the priestly garments? For beauty, for glory and for beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Satan is still genius, but he's insane. Many psychopaths are genius, but they're insane. So I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, if if you're the kind of guy that underlines in your Bible, underline verse 18, you profaned your sanctuaries. This is what Jesus has to cleanse when He takes His own blood into heaven. You profaned your sanctuaries. 
Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth. So all those gems. I mean, this dragon was glorious. This dragon had gold and silver and diamonds and rubies and lapis lazuli, all those, whatever that is, all those other gems and stones, okay? Until God brings the fire out from his belly and consumes it all. Now as a fallen dragon, he's the Leviathan from Job 41. And you can read there and see the, there's no gems there, there's no jewels there. There's just scales and darkness and death for the fallen dragon. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. That's why he has to disguise himself as an angel of light. He is an ugly, ugly fallen dragon now, but he's got to disguise himself as an angel of light, trying to recreate that lost glory that he had. I'll give you something to chew on, because I won't be back for a couple of weeks, but um, this primal fall of the anointed cherub gives us a great significance as to the repeated usage of cherubim to guard the holiness of God. It's constantly, constantly cherubim on the veil, overshadowing the mercy seat, standing at the Garden of Eden to keep Adam from coming back. It is always cherubim guarding the holiness of God. So take a look at those. Genesis 3.24, Exodus 25, 18-22. Also uh, Genesis 20, uh, Exodus 26.1. And don't overlook Exodus 26.31 as well cherubim on uh, overshadowing the mercy seat within the veil but also cherubim on the veil all right father uh, we do thank you for this morning we thank you for the approach that we have we can approach you at a moment's notice we can approach you each one of us believer priests we don't need uh, an intermediary because jesus is our intermediary intermediary the mediator between god and man the man Christ Jesus. I thank you for the confidence we have to enter within the veil, to stand before your holiness. And Father, I thank you that we have the garments you've prepared. We have the righteousness you've supplied. We have the beauty you've created. And none of it comes from ourselves. None of it is what we've earned or deserved. All of it is your grace. All of it. So Father, we thank you for this powerful doctrine. I pray that we would chew on it, that we would digest it, that we would live it out, that we would recognize that we are a part of a much larger uh, battle, a much larger angelic conflict, as you yourself, Father, through your Son, are resolving the uh, the rebellion of Satan back before man even was. So, Father, thank you for leading us into all things, even the deep things of God. Now, thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.